to have a seat. You can open up to Ephesians 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, 30. And I'm going to just read these three verses for us to get going this morning. 4.30 through 4.32. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I know I might be dating myself and some of us in this room, but how many of you are old enough to remember the phrase, be kind, please rewind? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. A few of you have no idea what that's even talking about. You're like, what is rewinding? Okay. Back in the days, the good old days of VHS and VCRs, and yes, videotapes. My kids literally made fun of me the other day because I called something videotaped. Companies that are now extinct, like Blockbuster or Hollywood Video, who I used to work for back in the day, uh, would package up their VHS videotapes in cases that on the outside it would say, be kind, please rewind. Now their whole goal was, was they didn't want somebody who was next to get the, the, the VHS tape and to have to rewind it before they watched it. They didn't want the employees to have to do it. And so they were basically, in essence, saying, hey, think about someone other than yourself. That's what they were saying. Be kind, please rewind. Unfortunately, in the mind of many believers and non-believers alike, I think it's acts of kindness like this, random acts of kindness, really, in and of themselves, separate from any other goal, that have come to define Christianity. You talk to the world, what is it that makes a Christian? Well, they're a really kind person. And this is why when you talk to someone, that's the first thing that comes out of their mouth. So-and-so is a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, because they're the nicest person I've ever met. And so my usual joking retort, which I know I'll probably get some uh, upset people on, is, oh, so they're Mormon, right? Because Mormons are the nicest people possible. They're far more nice than Protestants, for sure, right? So nice is what equates to Christianity in a lot of ways. A great example of this about Christianity was the phenomenon a couple years ago that you'd hear on K-Love or The Fish or the Christian radio, where they were encouraging people to buy coffee for the person behind you in line. Do any of you remember this? Every time that came on the radio, I was close to losing my salvation because I would scream at the DJ, for what purpose? Right? What is the point? Well, it's super nice, Hans. Yes, it is super nice. And we should do things that are nice. But what is the point? What is the goal with kindness detached from anything else? Random acts of kindness is what has unfortunately defined Christianity as of late. And what we need to do as Christians who search the scriptures is we need to look at why kindness matters to Christ. Because we are indeed called to be kind. Please hear me, I'm not saying it's a bad thing if you buy coffee for the person behind you. It's not a bad thing if you're a husband and you put the seat down for your wife. It's not a bad thing if you still watch VHS tapes and you're about to loan it out to someone, who knows who, and you rewind it first. These are good things, they're kind, but the question is, is are they detached? Because what I think we'll find as we look at the scripture today and we dive deep into it is that we're actually called to image God's kindness, God's kindness, not our own, so that we might draw people to Christ in order to make disciples. And in order to do that, we can't just put a kind or nice sheen on top of our hate-filled hearts. Guys, every election we see the true face of who we are as humanity Evangelical Christianity does a terrible job of being kind every election cycle. We can't put a kind sheen on our hate-filled hearts. We must be different at the core. We must be remade, regenerated, reborn into the image of God. In the Nine Marks book on conversion that our discipleship groups will be reading next, after we get through the gospel book, which at least in my group will probably take another five years at the speed we're going, Uh, Pastor Michael Lawrence says this in that book, Conversion. He compares a nice Christian with one who has been made new. Now, this is a long quote, but I, I would just ask you to bear with me and just listen. This is how he says the gospel of nice works. God wants me to be good. I'm able to be good. Religion will help me be good. No churches ever explicitly teach the religion of nice. In fact, they typically teach the exact opposite. But those same churches are filled with people who believe that God will accept them based on how good they've been. I can be good. God will be impressed. Religion will help. The appeal of nice is not only that it panders to our prideful desire to justify ourselves. 
It also dispenses with the need to justify ourselves to God altogether. It substitutes feeling good about myself. See, that's what you get when you pay for coffee for the person behind you. It substitutes feeling good about myself for being in right relationship with God and neighbor. It numbs my sense of guilt, soothes my anxious insecurity, and promotes the illusion that I am in control of my own fate on Judgment Day. So, in churches, we use Bible stories to teach children, and I would add adults, to be good rather than point them to a Savior. We take decrepit men like King David, and we say, be like King David. We just substitute certain parts of the story for others. The whole point of King David is that we need one better than King David, one that is the fullness of the heart. See, David was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't the fullness of God's heart. Only Jesus Christ was. And so the point of all the stories in the Old Testament is not prescriptive, telling us how to live. It is holding up a giant mirror to us going, can you believe how hate-filled we are? Boy, we need a Savior. And then come the Gospels. So what is it to be a new Christian instead of just a nice Christian? Well, Lawrence says this. He says, a Christian has a new nature, one that is bent toward God rather than away from him. That doesn't mean that a Christian doesn't sin anymore, but the old nature is no longer in control. Christ is. And the new nature has a new set of desires for God. The new creation may just be a seed, but that seed will grow. Now, regeneration has a corporate dimension too. The result of the Spirit's regenerating work is a people living together under God's rule. The Spirit doesn't simply make me a singular new creation in His kingdom. He makes me a part of God's new creation people. A local church should be a community of new creatures. Through our love and obedience, we give powerful testimony to the radical truth of the gospel. Put five, ten, fifty, a hundred Christians living together in gracious, loving community, and you have a message that cannot be ignored. Dear church, my fear is that if we are not purposeful, all that we will be doing at Mission Fellowship is producing nice people rather than developing and sending disciples that are made new in Christ and by our new hearts gathered together in love for one another, we should be calling out to a world that so badly needs Jesus. We should be a message that cannot be ignored. And I begin with this introduction this morning because I know Satan's devices. We've been sitting in the midst of Paul's commands. We've talked about four of his commands. We're in the fifth one. We'll be doing the sixth one next. And in the midst of these commands, I know how Satan works. He's whispering in your ear, see, your pastor's a legalist. Your pastor's trying to get you to earn your salvation. Commands are bad. Law is bad. But see, if we're believing that, we're not reading the word because the Mosaic law was fulfilled by Christ, and Christ now calls us to live under his law, the law of Christ. James calls it the law of liberty. Over and over again in the New Testament, we are called to follow Christ. We're not called to simply follow the rules of religion. In order to understand this, I have to remind you, what happened in the Old Testament? Was the law given before the Jews were saved out of Egypt? No, okay. Exodus comes before Leviticus. They were saved by God's grace. Nothing they've done, nothing they've earned. Even in the Old Testament, it was all by grace. The law was given to them so that they might image who Yahweh was to the world around them. Success or failure? Absolute, utter failure. Why? Because their hearts were not made new. And an attempt to be made nice happened for about a half a second. And so God promised them. He said, you will eventually be regenerated. You will get a new heart and a new spirit in you. And the New Testament talks about how the Jews and Gentiles have been grafted together into one being, one person, one body, the church. And so it's always been grace. Paul's point in giving us these commands is not in order for us to earn God's acceptance. It is because Christ has chosen us already to be his means by which he will reach a dead and dying world. The members of the church and the collective body that they form is the avenue by which God is reaching the world. And just as Yahweh said, look at Christ to understand me and hear me, Christ has now said to the world, look to the church as they are transformed by the Spirit and obey Scripture to understand me and hear me. 
And what we do is we outsource that to talented pastors and talented evangelists and take no responsibility on ourselves. We say, go listen to them, look at Christ, don't look at me, we're hypocrites. And in fact, we are being the Jews of the Old Testament more so than the church of the new. When we are given that new heart, we have discussed already something happens in us. Our deepest desire now becomes to obey God, to reflect him and join him in the mission to make disciples. That is our greatest desire as Christians. And if you are pausing and saying to yourself, Hans, that's not my greatest desire, then you really need to listen to today. Because that is the deepest desire of one who's been made new in Christ. Often, though, it's my deepest desire, but here's the reality of being a human, guys. It's not my strongest desire. Following Christ and obeying him is my deepest desire, but it's not my strongest desire in the moment. And so many times we say, well, therefore I need more rules. I need an accountability group. I need somebody to force me to use my deepest desire. And see, guys, that doesn't work. I've been a part of so many accountability groups. What will help us is relying upon the Holy Spirit to give us victory in all these things. It's living out of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, surrounded by the community of the Holy Spirit, living by the word inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we must realize that we are at war individually and together. And so while we groan because our strongest desires seem to pull us away from Jesus, if we are engaged in community of the Spirit, living by the word of the Spirit, praying daily for the empowerment of the Spirit to ignite the strength of our new heart, slowly but surely we will start to think before we act. And that seed will grow into a fruitful tree where I will start to realize that I can actually do what will most make me deeply happy. And that will connect with what God desires. Having accountability in all of this is only useful if we are already investing in this process ourselves. And so if you're a person today that already is sitting in conviction saying, but my deepest desire is not to obey Christ, it's not to read his word, it's not to grow in his wisdom— I would suggest to you, you have to ask yourself the question of, have you been made new with a regenerate heart? Have you fully been made new with the regenerate heart of Jesus Christ? I don't want to paint a picture that I'm standing up here perfect or anyone else in the audience is, but I can tell you that even in my darkest hours, the reason that I weep immediately upon sinning is because my deepest desire is to serve Jesus. Is that your deepest desire today? What is our deepest desire as Christians? Well, Ephesians 4.30 tells us by way of a prohibition. He says there, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And the first thing I want you to write down this morning, my first main point is, a Christ follower's deepest desire is to please the Holy Spirit. A Christ follower's deepest desire is to please the Holy Spirit. We finished off last week with verse 30, in which we saw that to harm one another is to wound the very heart of God, and to obey Christ's commands is to display the very heart of God. We saw this within this phrase, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, you might rightly say to me that a Christian's deepest desire should be to please the Father, right? And you are absolutely correct. Everything eventually moves back to the Father. He is the total authority. But remember that how God, the unapproachable, the infinite, the creator God that we serve, remember that how he exists among his people in this church age is by the Holy Spirit. And so we are not to grieve the Father nor the Son, but for us, specifically, the word uses the Holy Spirit as our liaison to the Trinity, if you will. And so we need to be a people that aim to please the Holy Spirit. So, How many of you agree with that statement? Raise your hand. Our aim should be to please the Holy Spirit. Raise your hand. Yeah? Okay. Now, honesty, how many of you actually know practically what it means to please the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand. Exactly. See, the problem is in Christianity is we use all sorts of words that mean something, but we don't know what they mean, and so we expound, and then we go on our way doing our same old thing. I want to tell you what it means to please the Holy Spirit. When dealing with the person of the Holy Spirit, many simply go on automatic and start to think, I have to become more spiritual to please the Spirit. It's the mantra of the world right now, and Christianity buys into it. You can find people 100% contrary to Jesus who desire to be spiritual. It's called Oregon. And if you want something closer, it's called Ashland, right? Sorry if you're from Ashland. So we start to think in terms of a false theology of the Spirit. We think in terms of spontaneity, mysticism, signs and wonders, and superstition. 
Then we'll please the Spirit. But that's not the context of the passage here in Ephesians 4.30. Nor is it the context in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 that speaks of quenching the Spirit. Nor is it the context of being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. All the context of these three verses, being filled with the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit, not grieving the Spirit. You know what the context is? It's the context of community. We focus on the Spirit half of this, and we, we forget that the Spirit dwells amongst the people. Take a look there at 5.18 for me for a second, okay? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Great, let's be filled with the Spirit. We put a period there, but notice it's a comma, and he goes on to say what it is to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. What is it for a church to be spirit-filled? Man, they got rock in worship. Well, that's part of it, right? Singing and making melody. But is it a church full of gratitude? Is it a church full of love and submission to, mutual submission to one another? Or is it a bunch of, bunch of individual consumers who show up on Sunday, do their thing, and then go about their business the rest, rest of the week? See, this is a spirit-filled church. We focus on the spirit piece. Sometimes I think probably what we need to do is we need to get back to the idea of the holy piece. I love the word holy in the English. It makes me think of whole, not missing any part. God is not missing any part, but it means more than that. It means anything that does not reflect the holy God we serve or is out of character with his heart, that is unholy. Holy is to reflect God. And so if the Holy Spirit dwells within us and we are reflecting God, he is pleased. If we are not, this grieves him. Particularly, the context of these passages shows clearly that to harm the Holy Spirit is to harm one another. And in fact, we can understand this quite clearly when we see from where Paul is pulling this phrase. Why don't you go with me to Isaiah 63? Go with me to Isaiah 63. Every time I go back to Isaiah, I can feel everybody going, but we just got out of there. <laughs> go back to Isaiah 63. We were only in it a year, guys. Come on. Just think, we went through all of Isaiah in one year, and we're going through all of Ephesians in one year. I've got a problem. <laughs> Look with me at Isaiah 63.10, and you'll see where Paul pulls this idea. Isaiah 63.10, it says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy, and himself fought against them. Now, we don't ever take a verse out of context. When we read, it's always in context, context, context. So we need to look around verse 10 and figure out what this passage is talking about. Well, verses 1 through 6 are God's judgment against wickedness. For God to be just, remember, he must deal with all wickedness in us as well as those non-believers. And so verses 1 through 6 are his judgment of the peoples of the world who afflict his true chosen people. Look with me just as an example at verses 5 through 6. God is saying here, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. That's speaking of Christ. And my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Verses 1 through 6 are grotesque. But that is what sin does to us, and God deals with it rightly. And then this character who is kind of the watchman of chapter 63 sitting at the gate waiting for God's salvation to come, he pauses to remind us that God is not just wrath. He's wrath only because he's first and foremost just and good. And he says there in verse 7, uh, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. Notice that, that phrase. Surely they are my people. Who are his people? Children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This uses buzzwords that remind Israel of who Yahweh is. The description it's from Yahweh's statement of himself that Dallas read earlier that he's 
compassionate and merciful and abundant and steadfast love. He is the God that saves us. He is the Redeemer. Well, then in Isaiah 63.10, rather than having a response to this, God says, but this is what they did. They didn't respond rightly. What did they do? Verse 10, they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Guys, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit was not an invention for the New Testament. It is the Spirit of God who is holy. And so they rebelled and they grieved Him. In verse 11, then He remembered the days of old of Moses and His people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? See, what's so interesting about this is that the people of Israel were a people that were chosen by God and the Holy Spirit dwelt in their midst. Does this remind you of anything in the New Testament? Anything that we've read from Ephesians? Why was it that they grieved the Holy Spirit here? What was it that they were doing? Were they not being holy enough, spiritual enough? Well, remember Isaiah 1. Go back there with me. Go to Isaiah 1, chapters, or, or verses 2 through 4. Isaiah 1 is the introduction to the whole book. And look at verses 2 through 4. Isaiah 1, 2 through 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. In other words, they have no relationship with me. They're not imaging me at all. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. These words are so foreign to us, uh, we don't speak this way anymore. But to deal corruptly is not talking about their relationship with the Father. It's talking about their relationship with one another. This is an unjust people. It's a people full of hatred and harshness and wrath and hurt and anger. And so what does he say to them? He says, become a just people. Look at verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. That's among one another. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, your injustice, the way you treat one another, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is speaking of the fact that Jesus would die in our place for our sins of injustice towards one another. And then we would be drawn to his people. And this next statement is as much for the Jews of Isaiah's day as it is for the church of today. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All of this could speak to us as if it were in the midst of Ephesians. Remember what we learned in Ephesians 2? You can look up at the screen here. Look up at Ephesians 2, verse 20. We, the church, are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the people among whom God dwells. There's not a tabernacle, not a tent, not a building made of bricks. It is the people, the collective people of the church in whom God dwells. And the first work of the Spirit is to draw us to Christ, but then the primary job of the Holy Spirit after that is to bring us into his people. Look again at the screen for 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Just as John the Baptist baptized with water, Jesus baptizes with the medium of the person of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit is the content by which we are baptized into the people of God. The covenant community of God's saints. So it doesn't grieve the Spirit when we're not mystical enough or spontaneous enough or do enough signs and wonders. It grieves the Spirit when we do harm to that unity He's created by treating one another unjustly. That is what harms or grieves the Holy Spirit. And so we have to get out of this idea that my spirituality and my pleasing the Holy Spirit has to do with me in a silo and if I am spiritual enough or good enough or righteous enough or obedient enough. That is not what any of this context is talking about. 
It's talking about how we show the just and righteous and good and loving and kind heart of Jesus to the world around us. And this is what Paul was trying to communicate here in Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And then, as if in parentheses, go back there with me. Go back to Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And then he continues with this almost parenthetical statement, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul captures our entire Christian walk here. First, he has the statement that we are sealed. We are sealed. Now, how many of you use that in everyday language, right? Anybody? Does anybody use that? Okay, so we need to understand what it means, right? What does it mean to be sealed? Well, first, to be sealed means security. This should bring us great joy and great hope because if we are his, we are secure in that state. If we are regenerate, you cannot undo a regenerate heart. See, a person who, quote-unquote, loses their salvation, folks, they were never saved in the first place. You can't undo a regenerate heart. That was Jesus' whole point in John 3. You can't unrebirth yourself. You can't re-die. You can't lose your salvation. We can easily misuse the new birth. We can easily push it aside, but you can't lose it. Jesus will not lose his people. But secondly, though, we need to understand this idea of sealing and the, the word image that is here. I want you to look at this graphic for a second, okay? What is that up there in the top left? What is that? What's that, what's that called? It's a ring. It's a signet ring, right? And then that little seal there is a wax seal. And you notice the line going across the middle of the page? That's a letter. Back in the day, they used to have signet rings, okay? This is, was, was their electronic signature if you've just uh, bought a house, right? Okay, and you, you sign your name. I don't know how that compares to this, right? I wonder all the time, like, how, somebody who's smart has to be able to break into that. But anyway, this was how they did it back in the day. The king would have a signet ring with his special seal on it, and he would press it into the wax, and then he would give it to a messenger. And when the person opened up the letter and they tore the seal, they would realize not only were they reading the very words of the person who sealed it with their signet ring, but the authority of that person was also coming along with the message. The word used in Ephesians 4 for sealed here speaks to the whole process of this sealing. For example, when the cave, the, the tomb was closed and they put a big rock in front of it, they sealed it. They put the governor's seal on the tomb so that everyone knew that it was sealed, it was secure, but also that his authority was on it. Now, what's interesting about this is that there's another word that's very attached to this. Look at Hebrews 1.3 with me. I've said this to you guys before. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Jesus, has a very interesting word. It says, he is the radiance. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That word imprint in the Greek is the word character. It's where we get the word character. And it speaks to this picture. It speaks to this idea because Jesus is the imprint. He is not the signet ring of the Father. He is not fully the Father. That's why you can't say, uh, it's amazing how often we, if we pay attention to this, we pray to the Father and midway through we start talking to Jesus. We never address Jesus. Back in the day, you could have been hung for that. That was considered a heresy because you didn't know who you're talking to. We've lost our view of the Trinity. Jesus is absolutely 100% God because he's the exact imprint of his nature, but he is not the Father. And so this idea gives us great clarity as to the Trinity. He is the exact imprint who is now ascended to the right hand of the Father, so he's 100% God, but he is not 100% the Father. Anybody else confused? But this is important for us to understand because just as Jesus was the divine imprint that we could look at and know we were not seeing the infinite Father, we were seeing his, everybody say it with me, character. Say it again, character. We could see the character of the Father, the character of the Father in the imprint of Jesus. And what's amazing about this is that I think this metaphor passes on to us because we are called to be the imprint of Christ because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We are sealed in the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to be like Jesus to the world. Well, Hans, I can never be like Jesus. I'm not perfect. Right, but there is a growing process of sanctification that will culminate when we see Jesus. Look at 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, meaning the fullness of perfection. 
But what we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's a process right there, guys. Our theology has become so much wait until Jesus returns and just kind of live your life that we forget that there is a process of sanctification that's supposed to be going on at all times where we're slowly but surely turning more into the divine imprint of Jesus Christ. And this word, as I said before, it also carries with it the connotation that our lives are to be sent as a message guaranteed by God's authority, by God's seal. How should you know that you're supposed to listen to someone? Do they bear the character of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus Christ. If their life doesn't back it, then you should not listen to them. That's why the first and foremost qualification of a deacon and an elder is character. Do they bear the character of Jesus Christ? Our lives are supposed to be a show to the world of who Jesus is. Can I ask you a favor? If in your workplace you are showing both complete hypocrisy and yet trying to bash people with the witness of Christ, please stop. Because those people should not listen to you because you do not bear the divine imprint of Jesus Christ. Well, Hans, are you asking me to be perfect? No, I'm asking you to be an imprint. I'm not asking you to be the signet ring. If we can bear that character of Jesus, then we are sent, not only in our own power, but by the authority of the one who sealed us and sent us to be a witness to the world. Paul uses this metaphor in 2 Corinthians 3. Notice what he says. He says, you, he's speaking to the Corinthian church, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We are sealed as a message from Christ to be given to the world. Your job here is simply to be re-energized to then be sent out to the world to do the majority of your Christianity. This is minute in comparison. We begin this journey of imaging Christ the moment we're sealed with the Spirit. And then Paul finishes off that we're sealed for the day of redemption. The day of redemption is a day of freedom from our sin, from darkness. Who's looking forward to that in here? Who's looking forward to the day when we're finally free of that stronger desire that fights against our deepest desire? Oh, I praise God for that day. I I joke constantly about how I wish I had a free will switch that I could use my free will to turn off. Well, that day will bring that, where we will finally be rid of our sin and temptation. We will finally be free from the adversary and our flesh, and we should rejoice in that day. And in the time between these two points of our sealing and the day of redemption, we've not yet become what we will be, but we are no longer what we have been. And so we press forward, trying to kill off all that is behind us by dealing with its ramifications in our lives and hearts. And moving forward in obedience to Christ through our love for Him and our love for one another. Let's be aware of what actually grieves the Spirit and repent from all that it encompasses. Let us be a church that pleases the Holy Spirit as he dwells amongst us, not with 15 minutes of really passionate worship, because we'd fail that, because we're just not a passionate worshiping church, I've noticed. I think it's because you're all just trying to take in the words, which is good. How do we do that, though? How do we image Christ? Well, Paul's command that he gives us today, it tells us very much how we image Christ. You can write this down. This is the second main point. The fifth command that Paul gives us is, do not imitate the malicious one. Imitate God in kindness and steadfast love. Do not imitate the malicious one. Imitate God in kindness and steadfast love. And if you don't know what malicious means, we'll get there. I'm talking about the devil, the malicious one. This teaching will dovetail nicely with next week's teaching because 5.1 in Ephesians begins with, be imitators of God. And so I'm doing some pre-work here for that teaching. But for Paul to rightly train and equip the Ephesian saints to bear the image of Christ, he knows they're already chosen and accepted. He's not giving them the commands to earn Christ's love. He's saying, now that you are part of the chosen people, let me train you to fully reflect Jesus. That's my job for you. It's the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And so he's spoken four commands, which you can go back and listen to. But command number five, Paul again uses this pattern of a prohibition, don't do this then a command, do this, and then the underlying reason behind it. So let's look at what Paul first prohibits in 431. 
He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. First thing we should notice is all. There is no room, no caveat, no loophole, no nothing. He says, put it all away. And the first thing that he says put away is bitterness. Aristotle spoke of this word as the resentful spirit which refuses reconciliation. The resentful spirit which refuses reconciliation. On the one hand, it's the person who refuses to confess and repent when wrongdoing or transgression is present. On the other hand, it is the person who refuses to accept that confession and repentance when it is offered. The question for us as Christians is, is our goal always reconciliation over and above self-protection and pride? It should be. I'm asking, is it actually? Because if that were true, there would be no such thing as church splits. There would be no such thing as denominational lines. It's just not a truth in the church. And so we, individually and together, we must make it our aim in this church to have reconciliation over and above self-protection and pride. And that means that when we're sinning, we need to confess and repent. And when we're sinned against, we need to be willing to hear that confession and repentance. Well, secondly, we need to put aside wrath and anger. And I bind these two together because most commentators agree that they're somewhat similar but somewhat different. Anger is not bad. We've talked about this. Remember the actual command. His second command was be angry when sin is in our midst. Right? That was an actual command of Paul. Be angry. You should enforce church discipline when there is blatant, unconfessed sin. But in 5.6, and in 5.6, we also see that God's wrath is justified. But here, it's used for an anger that occurs because one has been personally slighted or harmed. It comes from embarrassment or a hit to one's ego or frustration that somehow someone who you want to give you control has not granted you control. It's not motivated out of God's holiness, but more so out of our personal ego. Third, Paul says, clamor. Now, I just want to do a quick poll. How many of you use the word clamor this week? Anyone? Anyone? Ben, you're a teacher. I know you've used it, right? No? No? Okay. Clamor. I've, I don't use that that often, so I had to look this one up. An old word, uh, clamor is an old word that means something similar to what we would call a Facebook or Twitter rant. It's a person who throws up their hands in disgust at the person who just cut them off, just so you can see me do it. This is the parent that exclaims across the room, Knock it off! This is the person who gives loud, uncontrolled vent to their grievance. We must be those who speak truth and even help others to understand our hurt when it's there, but we must always do so with self-control. We must always do so with self-control. Fourth, he says, put away slander. Now, we've discussed this a ton in the midst of Ephesians because my opinion is that it was very present in the Ephesian church, as we see in First and Second Timothy as well. But this idea of slander falls in line with bearing false witness and operating in the image of the accuser. Remember, that is what diabolos, or the devil, means. It means the accuser. The word is blasphemy in the, the Greek, blasphemia. It means to be slanderous or abusive in our speech against one another or behind one another's back. Slander. And then lastly, malice. Malice is added as kind of a junk drawer catch-all phrase here, which means the intention or desire to do evil. Now, this can come in our actions towards one another. It can come in our active words or active actions against one another. But I find in the church very often it actually comes in omission. It comes from stonewalling another person and just ignoring them. It comes from keeping our distance. It comes from passive aggressiveness. And in these acts of omission, we intend to communicate or act out harm to one another. We are definitely doing it to manipulate. Rather than going to our brother or sister in truth and in love, we just kind of avoid them. I've seen this in this church. Rather than talk about what concerns you in the midst of our kids' wing, you just slowly but surely keep your kids out of kids class, rather than going and talking to the teacher who you're concerned about. These are all things that should not be in the midst of Christ's church. Because when we're doing these things, when we start to distance from a community group because it's just too hard for us, rather than going and talking to the leaders and working towards reconciliation, 
When we do these things, we are imaging not the one who causes reconciliation, the Holy Spirit, but we're imaging the adversary of all that is good. We're imaging the destroyer, the malicious one. The Spirit is grieved when God's people continue in any of these sins that divide and destroy the unity by which he, that, that he has actually brought. All of these hit directly at the heart of unity within the body. Well, Paul moves on from this prohibition to the command. You guys got this list? Everybody see it? Written it down? Yeah? Oh, it's silent. John Piper says that that means there's conviction or boredom, one or the other. Everybody got this list? All right. Let's move on to the command. What should we do? We can't just act in a vacuum and try and remove these things. Well, what should we become? Well, the first thing we should notice is that that next phrase he starts with is, he says, be kind to one another. That word be, the grammar in the Greek is to say become. This should be a process, but you should have it initiated at least. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. The first thing I want to point out to you is this word kind. What is it if it's not thinking ahead about someone else as in be kind, please rewind, or putting the toilet seat down? Or you know what? Ladies, you should put the toilet seat up for your husband. Can I get a hearty amen from the men, right? That may be totally fleshly and sinful and I may get struck by lightning in a second, but it's a good point, isn't it? It's a good point. All right. Dang it. Now that's the only thing you're going to remember from my entire teaching. I do that anytime I talk off my notes. Oh, all right. Well, be kind. What is it if it's not just random acts of kindness? Well, it's more than that. Here the word has a lot of range. The word in the Greek is used all over the place. It's used for God's goodness here in 1 Peter 2, 3. It's the same word. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Can you give me an amen if the Lord is good? Amen. God is good. We know his kindness. We know it because we experience it from him and from one another. It's also used just for the word kindness in other places as in Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now question, God is present in the church by the Holy Spirit, amen? And so God is present in his kindness in the midst of the Holy Spirit, right? And so shouldn't it be the kindness of the church that also draws men to repentance? Shouldn't it be? Yeah, it should be. We act as his hands and feet to the world. Well, secondly, Paul says not just kindness, but he says be tenderhearted, affectionate, compassionate, empathetic. That's what this means. Dads in the room, I want to give you permission to stop trying to turn your children into rough and tumble kids, but instead to be affectionate with them. Your children need kisses and hugs, and holding. Grandparents in the room, do that for your grandkids. Man, they need it. Brothers and sisters who have little brothers and sisters, be affectionate. We've gotten so weirded out because of this Me Too movement that we've taken all affection off the table and we walk around and go, oh, hello, Christian sister, side hug. Everybody see my side hug? Nothing happening here, right? Would you please just hug each other? If you're being a moron, one of the deacons will come up and smack you, okay? <laughs> Hug one another. Show affection. Uh-oh, is he going to say give the holy kiss? No, I'm not going to go that far. Because <laughs> there are a few single men in this room who would take it too far. So we're not going to go there, but hug one another. Show affection. Show Jesus' tender heart. And remember that he's compassionate to the people that he loves. He hears their cry. Part of how we can be compassionate is rather than busting past each other and saying, how you doing? Bye. We can stop and look in their eyes and we can say, how you doing? I want us to be a church that is known for our uncomfortable length of eye contact. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Look into their eyes. Let them know you care. One of the greatest things I was taught in all of my schooling was this one sentence. This was taught to me in my, my first uh, counseling class. Um, when you're sitting down with somebody and they're expressing their heart to you and they lay it all out, the way you can summarize for them to let them know you've heard them, to get input back, is to simply say to them, you feel, fill in the emotion, because, fill in the event. You feel used because you were abused. Watch the person melt and catch your tender heart and go, yeah, you get me. 
And if it's no, guess what? Then they can go, no, not really. Let me tell you. And then you can try it again. And guess what's happening? You're building intimacy and tenderheartedness. Husbands and wives, try this. You will thank me. My husband never listens to me. My wife doesn't understand me. I hear that all the time in the counseling chair. This will help you. Listen to your spouse. Listen to your brother and sister in Christ. Take the time to hear about them. Shut down your voice that's constantly thinking about self and listen to them. Part of becoming like Christ is to get our minds off of ourselves and ask, how are you with actual intent to listen and understand? Well, third, Paul says, not just tenderhearted like Jesus. Oh, side note, if you want to see Jesus at his most tenderhearted, go read The Woman by the Well. Man, he's good. We broke that apart as counselors to go, how did he counsel here? Wow, he's amazingly gracious and compassionate. He even stung her and she accepted it as gracious. That's a good Lord. Part of becoming like Christ is to get our minds off of ourselves. Well, third, we need to be repentant and forgiving. Now, why do I add repentant in there? Because he just says forgiving. I don't have time to go into it today, but you can go read my blog post on rightly dividing the topic of forgiveness. One of the problems with our theology in the church today is that we have said, well, Jesus forgives me even though I continue in uh, unrepentant, blatant sin, so that's what I should do for other people. So we press people who've been abused by parents to hurry up and forgive their unrepentant parent. We press people who are spouses to hurry up and and, uh, forgive their unrepentant spouse rather than saying, no, spouse, you need to repent from your abuse. And until you do, there will be division. You see, God doesn't forgive us if we're unrepentant and don't confess. Recognize that. If you get to heaven at the end of your life and you say, well, Jesus, you're just so gracious, and I know because the pastor told me that I raised my hand, I said the prayer, I'm good to go. And Jesus looks at you and says, well, wait a minute, did you read Acts 2 where it says, repent and be baptized? What are we all going to say as Christians? Well, uh," well, that's the point. Forgiveness comes because of repentance. The forgiveness is always available, but for us to grab hold of it, we must repent and step into God's covenant love. The cross is not an excuse to continue in sin, but an ever-present reminder at the necessity to cast off sin. It calls us to confess and repent and enjoy the forgiveness of Christ. So one might say here that the emphasis is not just on forgiving, but it's on confessing so that forgiveness can be granted. We must be ready to forgive at all times graciously and mercifully and immediately in light of those who come with confession and actual repentance. And the motivation for all of this, for acting in this way to imitate the image of Christ, the motivation for it is, as God in Christ forgave you. We are to conform ourselves in the image of Christ by living a life that reflects his level of sacrifice. And so we see Paul finishing with an understanding he will use in Ephesians 5.1 to recap the first five commands before he gives the sixth. We're going to hear today, as well as next time, this statement. And write this down, this is my last point. As the Son displayed the Father, so we are called to display the Son. Guys, that's why we're called the body of Christ. His actual body is seated in the throne at the right hand of the Father. We are his incarnate body on this earth. We can't do it alone. None of us can image him fully alone. But together, as that hundredfold body, as Pastor Lawrence called it, we can make a message and take it to the world. As the Son displayed the Father, so we are called to display the Son. Now, pastors and evangelists, uh, well-meaning, okay, not out of a bad heart at all, will often say at the end of a sermon that people should make a decision for Christ. You heard that constantly in the 80s and 90s. Have you made a decision for Christ? Well, I make a decision when I go order a Big Mac. I'm going to order a Big Mac. At least with the Big Mac, I actually go and do it. The decision for Jesus stops sometimes in our head and people believe that they've accepted Christ when they actually haven't. See, even the demons made a decision about God. They believe and decided that God exists and they shudder because their response is rebellion and action that leads to destruction. So this morning, I implore you not to decide, but to respond. Response takes decision, yes, but respond to what God has done as God in Christ forgave you. See, guys, God looked at a world that he created, a world that he breathed life into, and what he saw was that that same creation, not just Adam and Eve, but you and me, 
we told him we no longer want him. We don't want him to be part of our world. We want to be away from his presence, away from his goodness, away from his kindness. And as a Christian, for many years, if I looked at my actual life, that is exactly what I told Jesus the second I walked out of the doors of a church. Yeah, I'd listen to some praise music. I wouldn't do terrible things. But for the most part, success and moving up the ladder and having a big family and being known, those were all the things I was aiming for. You see, we have decided that our evil is better than his goodness. And rather than destroying us as we deserve, God sent his son, born of a virgin, to live a life in perfect obedience and harmony with the Father. And at the appropriate time, somewhere in his middle age, Jesus voluntarily allowed himself to be offered up on the altar of the cross, a sacrifice for you and for me. This would not only pay our debt of sin, but it would begin the purification process to take us from a rebellious heart And turn us into a heart of obedience. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. All that we deserved, he took. And through that sacrifice, Christ offered us a way for our sins to be dealt with and wiped away. And if you have not claimed that, if you have not said, Jesus, I take your sacrifice as a sacrifice for my sins, that is the first step. That is the decision you need to make and you need to make it today. But from there, you must then respond with that decision. You must instead give your allegiance to Christ, not to yourself. We are given unconditional acceptance and brought into the family of God by his grace at that moment that we claim his sacrifice. And the Father forgives our sin because the penalty was paid in our place. So if you haven't followed Jesus, if you haven't said, I want that to be my life, come talk with me in the back during worship. Patrick and I will be standing back there. We want to help you learn what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. For those of us who already have been accepted into his kingdom and his family, I want to ask us a different question. How can we go on any longer accepting the good news of Christ's work and forgiveness in our stead and yet respond with any form of disregard in the way that we treat each other and in the way that we live? How can we say, yeah, I accept your forgiveness, your love, your compassion, but that person, I'm not going to give that to them. We must desire God's glory greater than anything else. See, I think that what will make us as husbands, better husbands, is that we desire God's glory in the lives of our wives better than we even love our wives. Wives, same thing in reverse. We should love one another so much that we're willing even to put our relationship with that other person on the chopping block to speak truth so that God's glory can reign in their life. We should want to please the Holy Spirit far more than we want to please anyone else. And so some application for us this morning as we finish up. The first thing I want to ask us is to start asking the question in the moment, am I imaging God's kindness? Am I imaging God's kindness? If we walk out with these application points on a Sunday, our life should change. Uh, How many of you in the last week since we talked about putting away words which are unfruitful, how many of you were a lot more silent this week? Raise your hand. Like my wife was like, are you okay? You're so quiet. And I'm like, yeah, most of the stuff in my brain, I'm vetoing. And I'm trying to fill it with something fruitful, but nothing's coming out. That's how far gone I am. Like obedience should happen, right? And it shouldn't just be, okay, that week I practice this, this week I practice the next thing. But I want to ask us, am I imaging God's kindness? When you're in the middle of that fight, ask yourself, am I imaging God's kindness? Forget if the other person is, ask yourself that. Be kind. In all of our interactions, ask the Holy Spirit, ask one another, am I showing kindness of God that draws others to want to know God? And is there any immediate situation I need to deal with today in which I'm showing maliciousness and not kindness? Secondly, this is a big one for us, even today. I want to ask us if we're hospitable to the stranger. And here's what I mean. Over the last six months, we've put in uh, church membership, and we've shown that our theology is adjusted, and we've kind of laid down some new things, and we've had a number of people that have left. We don't really know the exact number, but 40 or 50, that's part of the reason we like membership, is now we know who the sheep are uh, in our flock. But that's a lot of people for a church our size, and I have watched, as many of us, myself included, have drawn inward and said, okay, I'm not going to take these people serious until they're seriously committed here. 
And so I watch as visitors come in and they sit by themselves and they kind of look around to see if anybody's going to notice them because most of us are clumped together in groups. And guys, this is the reason, the number one reason most people hate membership. It's because it becomes a us for no more club. Part of what membership is is to show who is committed to who so we have the confidence to then step outside of our bubbles of comfort to go to the stranger, the person who may not be uh, comfortable in our church because they're visiting, to love them and care for them and introduce ourselves. I want you to look around during worship and notice faces that you've never seen before. And I want you, yes, you, with social anxiety, to get up and go introduce yourself. Be the image of Christ. And if you have so much social anxiety that you're like, I can't do it, start praying right now that the Holy Spirit would give you an impacted heart where you would rise and go introduce yourself. Bare minimum, grab somebody else and then have them introduce you. (laughs) But we need to be kind. In the early years of this church, I heard from everyone who visited, man, your church is so kind. I haven't heard that in the last year. And I'm sad for that because I know you are kind people. So let's love the visitors that we have even amongst us today. I'm going to have them come up. We're going to do karaoke right now. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But we're going to at least love them. So let's draw them to Christ by our love for them. Make them part of the family. Why would they want to become members of our church body if they look around and all they see is people who are prickly? Right? And lastly, I realize that for all of us in this room, Paul's call to reflect Christ is impossible in our own strength. And so the last thing I want us to do is every day this week, throughout the day, I want us to pray for the empowerment of the Spirit in imaging Christ. Given our innate capability in the flesh, we cannot answer the call alone. We need Christ to give us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is already in place in us. We simply have to be praying, Holy Spirit, take the lead. Push my flesh down, rise up. Because we are supposed to be the church that by our kindness draws men and women to Christ. Let me show you one small thing. I know this is a long teaching today. You shouldn't be shocked by it. That's a joke. Turn to Acts chapter 1. And this is the last place I'll turn you and we'll finish up here. Acts chapter 1. I want to show you something. Because I think that we've gotten so much in the habit of outsourcing our spirituality to pastors and evangelists that we forget that we are the very means by which Christ is going to reach the world. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke says here, in the first book, O Theophilus, we don't know if that was an actual person or the word Theophilus, right? It means lover of God, okay? If he's writing to just Christians. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, notice that next word, what does it say? Began. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given uh, commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He began. He didn't finish. He left, but his work was still going on. Many commentators have said that this book should rightly not just be called the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Church, the Acts of the Body of Christ. Why? Because what he started, we finish. He will come one day to put the punctuation mark on it, to be sure. But in the, in the, the church age, we are the ones that carry forth his work. We don't sit around and go, Jesus, why haven't you acted? He goes, but I gave you my Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. He says to his church, to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Guys, that's not just for missionaries. That's for those of us that attend this church called Mission that are missionaries everywhere we go. How do we do it? Well, the Holy Spirit right there in verse 8 that he gave us, guess what it is? It's the same exact Holy Spirit in verse 2 that empowered him to command his apostles to do the work that he did. We are to be the witnesses of Christ by bearing his imprint, his image, his character, his kindness to the world around us. If we connect kindness to that motivation and goal, then it's not about random acts of kindness. Christianity is not just about how we get to be with Christ for eternity. It's about how we are with him now by the power of his Holy Spirit within the community of the Spirit and the mission upon which we have embarked with Christ and one another. That mission is to display not just random acts of kindness detached from the goal of making disciples, but that we would display the genuine kindness of Christ that draws men and women to repentance so that they too might become his disciples. 
I pray that this message this morning would sink into us deeply so that we would understand, yes, be kind. Put away all things that are unkind. But more so that we would realize that to please the Holy Spirit is to use that kindness to make disciples and to draw the unbelieving world to Christ. I pray that the Holy Spirit would remove the scales from our eyes and remove all other worldly ambition and motivation so that the mission of making disciples would rise to our highest priority.